Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. I'm Brendan Wesser, and this is New Books in Science Fiction. My guest today is M. X. Liu, author of The Death I Gave Him, a lyrical, queer, sci-fi retelling of Shakespeare's Hamlet as a locked room thriller. Um, as a big Shakespeare uh, geek, nerd, enthusiast, I'm really excited to talk about this book today. Um, so welcome, Em, as you join us from your home in Toronto, Canada. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to chat. Yay! All right, so to get started, let's talk a little bit about the book. How would you describe an overview of The Death I Gave Him? Ooh, you're starting out with the hard questions, huh? Uh, so I've had some time to perfect my elevator pitch. Um, so essentially, I would describe it as like a near future science fiction retelling or reimagining of Hamlet. Um, and I kind of describe it that way because, you know, the inception of the novel really came from, you know, retelling or reseeing Hamlet in this specific way. Um, and the sort of fun parts of it is that it's set in a lab, in a locked lab over 24 hours. Um, and it's kind of a murder mystery, kind of an emotional thriller. Um, and, you know, ultimately it is a, you know, I would really describe it as like a character study. I think that's a really good way to describe it. Um, I was thinking too ahead of this, you talked a little bit about the murder mystery and the thriller. And oftentimes we think of Hamlet as just a tragedy. So it was really kind of mm-hmm. interesting take. Why did you decide to do that kind of locked room thriller murder mystery Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the thing that I think is, you know, fun about Spear is what happens when you kind of take the story at face value um, rather than kind of, you know, seeing it through the context of having studied and learned Shakespeare for hundreds of years now. Um, And, you know, if you kind of approach the story of Hamlet and you go in blind, so to speak, um, you essentially are approaching it as a murder mystery, right? Because part of the central tension of the play is whether or not Hamlet is mad and whether or not he's telling the truth and whether or not he can trust what he has seen. Right now, approaching as an audience where you don't have any previous expectations of the story, you you know, have to approach it from the way where we don't know how much of what we're seeing is true. And that really puts you in that same mindset as Hamlet in the play. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to try and find some way to bring that element back into the narrative and make it seem as if you're kind of approaching it in a new way, um, rather than kind of approaching it as we would approach Hamlet through a 10th grade English class. (laughs) That's what everyone wants to do in their free time when they're reading new novels and be taken back to 10th grade. <laughs> but you know what? I first encountered Hamlet when I was in the 10th grade and I loved it. So you never know. It could be a life-changing experience. <laughs> well, it is though, because it is that story of that, that coming of age story, right? And in so many mm-hmm. ways, I think if we taught it that way, it might be a little more in- engaging for, for those in the, in the upper grades. Um, but you've managed to keep that that kind of essence as well as this coming of age in, in addition to the idea of, you know, can we trust Hayden 
who's our, our mm-hmm. Hamlet. How can mm-hmm. we trust his point of view? Is he a reliable narrator? You know, what's going on with him? But he's also very young, maybe mm. not just in age. It feels like maybe he's in his 20, but he also feels a young person. He's very sheltered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he's sheltered in a really interesting way. He's sheltered by, you know, this work that his father was doing at Elsinore mm-hmm. Labs. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a very interesting way of kind of capturing some of that, that sheltered, some of that finding yourself um, amongst other people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think part of, um, you know, what I, I really love about uh, Hamlet is that sort of sense of like, like we were talking about that coming of ageness, the youth that's really inherent, I think, in the text. Um, now, you know, we can get into the debate of how old is Hamlet really versus, uh, you know, different variations on the text. And that's like a whole thing. But my personal interpretation is, uh, you know, I think it is a very much a sort of young adult hood, uh, you know, when you're freshly an adult coming of age kind of um, narrative. And and I really wanted to reflect that. Um, and again, a lot of this is to kind of destabilize previous expectations that you might have of the text um, coming in. And, and that's why, you know, I kind of made some of those choices I did to really exaggerate and emphasize the sort of youth and shelteredness of Hayden, um, because I, you know, it's a Hamlet retelling, but I wanted to set him apart from what you might have uh, sort of previously thought coming in, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and with that, I think, you know, you've made some really interesting choices in your characters. We've got mm. Horatio as a not quite all-knowing AI who mm-hmm. is, you know, can see a lot and has watched, you know, Hayden grow up um, mm-hmm. and knows a lot about Elsinore. But even as we're, we kind of move through the story, we realize he's not, um, or it, I actually don't know how Horatio refers to Horatio is largely <laughs> indifferent, but he will use he, him pronouns when convenient. <laughs> All right. Thank you. I was like, I don't actually know. I don't know. We'll remember. Uh, but, uh, well, but I mean, part of it, not to, sorry, not to jump in here, but part yeah, of it ahead. is that um, I think so much of Horatio's humanity and understanding of the world and how he interfaces with the rest of the world um, and how he understands like humanity in general is filtered like through his relationship with Hayden. Um, and therefore it is important to him that he does identify as similar to Hayden as, you know, they, they approach the world with a similarly gendered mindset uh, because of like that foundational relationship. Um, so, yes. <laughs> no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's in throughout the telling, even though this is the, the 24 hour, you know, locked room, um, we do have these kind of callbacks and these memories and flash forwards Mm -hmm. and in different ways of storytelling. And some of that is, is through the growth of, you know, Horatio before he even had a name, it was just the Mm -hmm. operating system. And so it's kind of interesting that you get to see that, that change and evolution um, instead of, again, what we normally see in a lot of sci-fi is just kind of this all knowing or all powerful AI that's controlling ships or controlling worlds, um, Mm -hmm. you actually see something a little more fragile and a little more human. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, And and a really kind of big preoccupation of the novel is that idea of uh, like 
what does it mean to be human? Uh, what does it mean to be a person? Is that the same thing? Um, what does it mean to be like a person with consciousness, but without a body? And then what, you know, conversely, what does it mean to be trapped inside a body, right? And I really wanted Hayden and Horatio respectively to kind of like act as sort of mirrors to each other um, and influence each other uh, and kind of change and grow alongside each other along those themes. Yeah. And I, I love too, when you talked about, you know, being, you know, locked inside a body or without a body or even just mm -hmm. what we think of as a body, um, mm -hmm. because there are times when Horatio thinks of, you know, the labs and the building of the lab as his body, but then realizes he doesn't know everything that there is to know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just like how you, you have so many different elements that play with that. That's a really in interesting insight. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I am very... I find myself often in my work preoccupied with that notion of exactly what you said, like what even is a body, right? Um, and I think, especially with those parallels between Hayden and Horatio, what happens is that, you know, you see this fluctuance um, in that Hayden is someone who is very, very embodied. And I think his perspective really reflects that. And he does often feel trapped within his body um, versus Horatio is someone who is very much in wanting of that, at least that experience, right, of what it is to be within a body. Um, and um, he kind of gets that through uh, experiencing the world through Hayden. But then there are these aspects where he will sort of feel and, and kind of almost understand that feeling of entrapment because of the revelations where he's like, oh, you know, this building is what houses me and technically is my body, but this building it has secrets that I don't know about. And then what does it mean to have that then betray you, right? Um, and I think in those times, it's when he really understands like where Hayden is coming from, Um when he ever, whenever he feels like very trapped within a body and he understands that sometimes having a physical form is like a form of vulnerability, literally in and of itself. Yeah, that's a absolutely, that's beautiful. And I don't know, I think even as we talk about, it, I think Horatio is one of my favorite characters in this, in this book. Uh, I just mm -hmm. love what you've, what you've done with that experience, um, you know, in so many different ways and in terms of this, in terms of Horatio's experience and relationship with Hayden and experiencing mm -hmm. the world and kind of asking himself his own existential questions um, as an AI. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a really, speaking of character studies, it's a, it's a wonderful, mm -hmm. um, it's a wonderful study that you've done with that character. Um, has it Thank always you. been in your mind kind of like Horatio is this AI with all of these different experiences or did that kind of evolve as you were writing the story? Well, actually, um, so I used to actually just kind of brainstorm different ideas of like what I would do with the Hamlet retelling and that's kind of very much where it came from. But as soon as I kind of thought about this one, because I thought in my head, I was like, I want to write a STEM Hamlet, like a sci-fi Hamlet. Um, it, it really all came together. Like that was very much part of the foundational idea where it would be set in a lab. Um, it would be kind of like a locked room setting and Horatio would be the AI. I think those were literally maybe the three things that like I put down first. I love it. I love it. Well, so wait, can you share some of the uh, other ideas of that you had for retellings that maybe didn't stick? Oh my gosh. I had, I had this one where it was, it was like, they were all, these were all very 
very loose um, sort of more concepts, right? And, and more like, this is what I maybe want the vibe of it to be um, rather than concrete ideas. There was one where everything was set in space. <laughs> and so similarly kind of sci-fi, but a bit more like, I would say like less like realistic science and more out there science where it was like an Elsinore station and uh, like everything was set in space, but it had similar elements of like kind of that claustrophobia locked room um, sort of vibe because again, you know, in space, you can't really leave the spaceship. Um, there was another one um, that was a, um, like a celebrity drama AU kind of thing. <laughs> and, and that was like, you know, I was really thinking about the sort of idea of surveillance and and how how that plays into the story and again you know all of these things are still present I think in the death I gave him but uh, that would just be like a little bit more exaggerated in that version um there were some really out there ones <laughs> I think there was like an ancient Chinese historical court drama one and then um like a Russian revolution idea like I have to admit I was a Shakespeare nerd in high school this was my hobby <laughs> I love it. It's like, it's almost like your version of fan fiction. Like, what would I do if I... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I absolutely wrote Hamlet fan fiction. <laughs> oh, wait, now this is really getting interesting. Oh, so what, what was your Hamlet fan fiction like? I think a lot of it were just kind of like little snippets um, that came out of like those kind of concept five ideas so then a lot I would like kind of get an idea, write down maybe like a scene or two from it. And then if I was like satisfied or dissatisfied I would kind of you know just do whatever with it um and then it wasn't really until I had sat down to write the death I gave him that it actually came together as a full novel um so it just exists in the depths of my google drive bunch of snippets (laughs) no that's great though you can kind of see your own evolution and then have lots of things to pull from so it's like the best of Mm -hmm. both worlds (laughs) absolutely and like things like character names um like, uh, there was a version of the story where, um, like, my Laertes character was a little bit more prominent than he is in The Death I Gave Him, um, where I kind of let him take more of a backseat uh, to Felicia, who's my Ophelia character. Um, but I had come up with, like, a whole, like, his name is Arthur, but he goes by Art, you know, like, that whole thing. So when it came time to, you know, give him, to write his scene in The Death I Gave Him, I was like, okay, like, I already have this figured out. <laughs> Which is, which is leads into like another question I had as I was reading it, this idea of like you kept some names, but you did change other names. Um, mm-hmm. And the names are, are great. Like I love, you know, Ophelia being Felicia. I don't know why. I just, mm-hmm. it just speaks to me. Um, but <laughs> but ha- was it hard to decide like which names to change and which to kind of play with or which to mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. you know, keep the same like Elsinore, you know, I, I guess mm-hmm. maybe you have to keep Elsinore. Um, but what was that? Mm-hmm. I mean, to be really honest, I just think that Elsinore sounds very nice. And it sounds like a very, like, to me, Elsinore is such an important part of the story that I wanted to keep that aspect, certainly. Um, because again, I think the setting of Elsinore Castle is like such a, and, and its influence on the story is an important way in how I conceptualize um, the story uh, in that if you think about it now, this is something that, you know, again, I've read Hamlet so many times. I've thought about this a lot. Um, 
But when you really think about it, the story itself, like the actual physical setting of the play, never quite leaves the castle grounds. Like there is one scene where Hamlet is kind of in a forest and he runs into the Norwegian army. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that happens on the castle grounds, like you know, funeral scenes or where they see the ghost, etc. But for the most part, most of the story takes place like within Elsinore Castle and its grounds. So because that was again, something that I wanted to almost literalize, right? I think that's the power of genre where you can take themes from narratives and literalize them um, in the way that I did with like sort of everyone is literally under lockdown um, because that, se- that theme was kind of a prominent part of how it conceptualized the story and the narrative and the and, and what was like important, um, I wanted to keep Elsinore. And I also just thought Elsinore Labs was kind of like a catchy, it sounded nice to me. Um, with Horatio, I wanted to keep him as Horatio to actually set him apart from the rest of the characters a bit. I wanted him to have this almost timeless feel, like it's very much like still an old fashioned name. It kind of it puts you in that setting um, and like it reminds you of Hamlet, right? In a way that the other character names don't. Um, and I did want to kind of separate him from the rest of the cast that way. And everyone else, uh, you know, I, a lot of the names, I'm not a person who really looks into name meanings. So a lot of the other names are just names that I thought kind of echoed the character without being too obviously just the character. No, oh, I think that makes sense. I mean, and I, Horatio being timeless, it's true, right? You don't expect mm-hmm. an, an AI to necessarily have a, you know, a, a common name or a today name. Um, mm-hmm can have whatever name it wants mm-hmm. oh, excellent. and you know back to Elsinore and the the mm-hmm. idea of so much of the play the original play right Hamlet takes place mm-hmm. on the castle grounds um, I think one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is how that inexplicable draw of Elsinore mm-hmm. labs to mm-hmm. everyone in or, or all the characters that we see um, mm-hmm. is this almost as, as a character, right? Almost as this very mm-hmm. kind of gravitas, like in the background, everyone has this in, inexplicable, inexplicable draw to it and can you escape it? And is it something you escape? Um, mm-hmm. There was also just that really interesting layer that you added in um, that speaks to, you know, the importance of Elsinore. Mm-hmm. So nice, nice work there. Thank you. No, I, I really, really love setting as character. I think, you know, creating a sort of vivid setting is so important in really immersing yourself in the atmosphere of a story. Um, and so, you know, I really wanted Elsinore to have that slightly clinical and yet, you know, something irresistible is a good word for it, right, about it. Um, and the image that I really, really had in mind um, and and this comes up in the book is this image of like Elsinore on the water and it's dark out and the water is so like, it's so dark. The water looks almost black and Elsinore is just there in the distance and it's lit up because it's always lit up because there's always something going on inside it. Right. And you just see that across the pier um, and it calls to you. It draws to you across the water. Like that image really stuck out to me. um, And I wanted everything kind of oriented around the building to make you feel like you were standing there looking at it. Oh, and those are beautiful scenes too, because it, it, that imagery comes up, you know, a few times and, mm-hmm. and it's a really, it is, it's like that imposing, but also I want to go there. 
it's lit up. It's across the water. I want to go there, but also it's imposing. Do I really want to mm-hmm. go there? Exactly. Like, you know, when you're, at least when I was younger, I used to, you know, read horror stories, <laughs> even though I knew it with Garmy, like that sort of, you know, it might be kind of bad for you, but you're still drawn to it. All right. Well, so we've talked a lot about kind of, you know, how your take and where it evolved from and, and how it's worked into the book, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, this near future take, which is interesting. Were there any pressures that you felt in doing a retelling of Hamlet? Um, you do it very well and it feels very, you know, very fresh take. It does have that thriller aspect. Um, but were there things that you were worried about or pressure you felt in taking your own approach to the story? Mm-hmm. Well, I honestly, you know, it, Hamlet is one of those stories that we keep telling ourselves, right? And certainly I, you know, was aware of the idea that people would be coming into this with some preconceptions. Um, but I think that's inevitable. Um, I, I tried not to think about that too much when I was working on it. And again, I tried to make certain choices that I did um, kind of in an attempt to destabilize your relationship to the original text. Um, there were some things in the novel that I did um, try really hard to make enjoyable, regardless of whether or not you knew the ending. Um, because I know I knew kind of going in that people would generally, you know, know what the gist of the story, right? It's This isn't one of those retellings where things really, really turn topsy-turvy. And I don't think that's too much of a spoiler because, again, I tried to do my best in text to sort of create this um, framing where even though you know some of what happens at the end, um, like I think you find out this in chapter two. So I don't think this is a spoiler for me to say, but you find out that Felicia's dad dies, right? Um, and I knew that people read, who have read Hamlet would know that that happens. Um, but then there would also be an audience where, you know, they wouldn't have read Hamlet. So they wouldn't know that that happens. Um, so I didn't want to create a situation where I was like kind of running too far ahead and leaving people in the dark. But I also did want to essentially spoil it in advance so that the story can stand regardless of whether or not you know that that happens, right? So there are these little moments here and there where I do kind of... Um, like do that little trick where I tell you a little bit advance in the narrative about what's going to happen so that hopefully, um, you know, whatever does happen lands regardless of whether or not you kind of knew that all along. And I did that mostly to try and bring people to the same page because I knew that, you know, again, it's a very famous story. It's perhaps one of the most famous stories in the English canon. Yeah. And I think too, and, and this isn't a spoiler because it happens right at the beginning. There's, there's also the idea of that, the story that we're reading was put together by a student as a mm-hmm. an academic project, kind of mm-hmm. looking at the the effect, kind of even in the further future from the events that happen um, mm-hmm. in the story, but in the further future, kind of looking back and seeing mm-hmm. how it impacted you know, the time that he's living in or they're mm-hmm. living in. I think it's a he, I, the big character who wrote it or the character who wrote it um, mm-hmm. as an academic project. Um, so there's even that kind of throwing you off kilter a little bit, being like, yeah, we know, reader, you might know, think you know some things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. So it, again, you know, it's the distancing from the story that I think is what 
you know, that frame narrative does where it both preempts kind of some expectations and also does set this as like a sort of, you know, even within the universe of it, this story is influential in an, in its own way, the same way that the story of Hamlet is kind of influential within our world and our understanding. Uh, and even more so in this world, perhaps, um, because of the technology that they're mm-hmm. talking about. Because yeah. e- at the heart of the story, even though it is a character story, there is, you know, there is this this technology that's being developed mm-hmm. and who's, you know, is it going to be finished and who's going to have access to it and and where does it go and what is its impact on society, which is, you know, very subtle to the actual mm-hmm. story, um, but interesting in what you were just saying and the impact of what we're reading on their timeline on the, mm-hmm. in the world's timeline, which is really interesting mm-hmm. and, and kind of that subtlety with our own, because I don't know how many of us, you know, think of ourselves as royalty, Danish royalty. Um, <laughs> but there are, you know, definitely parts of Hamlet that impact us even in our own timeline, which is interesting to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think part of the power of that story is how, frequently relatable people find it um and and certainly there are like although the death i gave him is about like it is about a technology that doesn't exist it's about people who are kind of working on um this project that is so significant in the world um and and you know slightly fantastical slightly futuristic science fiction um but at the heart of it i think it comes from a very, very human impulse, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's see. What else? Well, let's talk a little bit about Felicia. Mm-hmm. I love how much agency that you've given her in this book. Um, a lot of her story happens to be told um, kind of from excerpts of like a tell-all that she's done again Mm -hmm. after the fact she's kind of wrestled with the events of what's happened in her own mind and she's done these tell-all interviews or a tell-all book um why did you think it might be important to do it that way with kind of that distance for her kind of looking back at the events that happened that night Mm -hmm. well i mean i think a lot of um the way that we approach like the sort of character that you know she represents in the text is I think there is a tendency to and you know this is like centuries of misogyny and speaking to this but there is I think a tendency to cast uh that character as someone who's slightly historical or a bit too emotional or you know sort of uh, acting on impulse and madness in a way that some of the male characters who have, you know, similar archetypes, similar experiences, you know, wouldn't necessarily be described that way. And what I wanted to do with Felicia is that I wanted to create a character who, you know, was emotionally volatile because she is in some very stressful situations um, and is like actively drawing together some parallels between her and um, Hayden, right? Because they, go through pretty similar things um, on a narrative stance. And they both, again, are pretty big emotions people and they both process in their own way. But I wanted to give her the space and the time to then uh, like, 
process and present everything um, sort of from that retrospective to both have that, you know, sense of emotionality as, but then as well as, you know, having had the space and the time to process and add a framework to that rather than purely presenting it as, you know, something that is in the heat of the moment. Oh, and that's that's the part of the agency that I, I was referring to, this idea that she has so much to, more to offer the story. And although there are stressful moments that happen, mm-hmm. um, it's not what we, you're right, it's not what we would think of as some of the other castings of, you know, air quote, hysterical, um, mm-hmm. you know, or that, you know, impassioned, but not in a good way. (laughs) Right, exactly. See, that's the thing, right? Like you, even just like through how people describe Hamlet, like Hamlet is impassioned. He is sympathetic. He um, is the protagonist, right? And then similarly, you get someone like Ophelia who is, you know, she lost her father and she goes mad after she lost her father. Like that's literally the exact same thing that Hamlet is kind of pretending towards, right? And then because you get, Hamlet's point of view and you get his like sort of inner um, monologues and all of that and you know that he's kind of faking it um, or that's kind of his plan um, versus Ophelia who in the text is kind of presented as just basically she goes mad right and then it's just gone kind of unexamined um, and certainly you know I think there are so many ways to give that character um sort of agency within the story um and certainly i think that what i wanted to do with it was i wanted to highlight those parallels between uh, felicia and hayden and i wanted to really show that in so many ways these two characters are going through something very very similar and they process and um express how that affects them in these different ways and that i think is the interesting aspect of having these two stories in the same spot rather than a sort of, you know, one of them is passionate and one of them is hysterical (laughs) comparison. No. And that mirror image, right? We talked about Horatio and Hayden kind of not mirror image or at least a reflected image, right. Mm -hmm. Of, of Mm -hmm. those characters and, and how different they are. And then the same thing with Hayden and Felicia and in, Mm -hmm. you know, similar ways with his uncle and his father, right. They kind Mm -hmm. of, Mm -hmm. again, another reflection um, or H- even Hayden and his father, or Hayden and his mm-hmm. uncle, these different Absolutely. reflections that you've made throughout the book, which just tie everyone together. Absolutely. And I, and part of it is it's just it's two families and we're all stuck together um, and people relate to each other in these different ways. Uh, and everyone is kind of tangled up in each other and all up in each other's business. And I think that's part of the fun as well. <laughs> drama (laughs) family drama family drama everyone loves to read about family drama which is why the celebrity version may have worked as well (laughs) (laughs) that would that would have been a big role in the celebrity version absolutely (laughs) uh i love it i love it uh so let's see um were there any inside jokes or easter eggs that you snuck in there for those who are you know, really proud to love Shakespeare. Did you think to add any little nuggets in for those folks? Ooh, I think honestly, one of the more like little fun niche bits that I put in, not so much about like, you know, the actual text, but more so about some, some theories of the text that I've seen over the years. Um, 
is there is at one point near the end after you know the whole story becomes like a whole people know about the story it's like a press thing um and felicia is telling hayden about all the crazy things that people are saying um i did i i, I snuck in a couple of like just interesting theories that i had seen regarding the actual like what do people think actually happened in hamlet um sort of situation into that um i think that was where i was like haha this will be kind of fun um other than that honestly not too many like easter egg moments like there is some naming things that are like bad puns or at least one that i'm thinking of um and i will let people guess at that one <laughs> um but other than that, a lot of it is just kind of there on the surface. Like a lot of the analogies that I made, you know, I feel like they're pretty clear analogies. And then everything else, you know, I added my own twist and turn on things. I like how you're like pun teasing for the audience. Like if you yeah, like yeah, puns, you wanna... <laughs> go look. <laughs> yeah, at me if you if you find it. <laughs> I know. Don't don't tell anyone else. You have to go on the treasure hunt and find the pun yourself. So it's um, actually honestly, it's just lame, and I don't even want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm trying to think back. I'm like, I don't remember puns, but I also, you know, have a. <laughs> I do the groaning at puns mainly because I'm <laughs> by people who love them. And I'm like, oh, I love them, but not that much. <laughs> so now I'm like, I need to go reread it to find the pun. Oh. incentive to reread it. <laughs> oh, fine. I guess I'll reread it. It'll be fine. Ah, oh, goodness gracious. Um, so thinking back to uh, this idea of a, a thriller versus a tragedy versus a character study, um, where would you want to see it on a shelf? You know, forget about, you know, where your publisher has decided it's going to go. Where, where would you be most help, excited to see this like on a bookstore shelf? Hmm, that's a good question. I certainly think it leans more like science fiction than thriller. Like I think if you are someone who really likes, you know, crime thrillers or like a true mystery thriller, I don't necessarily think this will be the book for you. Um, I think that it, carries this a lot of similar beats as like you know more of like an emotional psychological thriller certainly um but like i said again a lot of the mystery plot points are are less so there to be like a true mystery and more so there to scaffold a lot of the world building character building the the themes of this story so to speak um i certainly would be happy to see it on a science fiction shelf i think you know, the what I would say is it, it leans more of like in a literary sci-fi sphere. Um, I would put it probably next to um, if you enjoy something like either Annihilation or like uh, Station Eleven, like those kind of novels where part of it is the mixed media, part of it is um, like an attention to prose, part of it is really like character forward narratives. Um yeah, I think that was probably your best bet for for where it would fit that fit the most right on a shelf. Excellent, excellent. I can see that. I can see it, especially when you said Station Eleven. I'm like, I can see it on like a a center display <laughs> for Shakespeare lovers and science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, uh, and people being like, "More, where are more of these things?" Uh, yeah, I, I need them now. Uh, so. 
And then, of course, because Hamlet is a play, um, did you ever think while you're writing this of it being a play or a screenplay or something on the, the small screen or the big screen? Um, as you're writing it, did you kind of think, hmm, maybe I could see this performed by actors someday? Mm. Well, I actually do think, you know, again, it's adapted from a play and it also, again, emphasizes so many of those elements of, you know, why it is a powerful play. Like there's a lot of, I think theater is absolutely one of the best mediums for um, conveying that sense of claustrophobia and loneliness, particularly like um, that sense of, you know, if you're watching an actor on a screen and it's TV or a movie and they're kind of alone, it doesn't hit quite as hard as if you're in a theater and you're looking at an actor and he's alone on a stage, right? Um, so certainly I think because the death I gave him is so preoccupied with pulling out those themes um, from the original stage play and really, really emphasizing them, I can certainly see as like a stage play adaptation and it limited cast that's all in one setting, like it, it lends itself pretty well. Um, I didn't think about it myself personally when I was writing it. I mean, there are certain parts of the novel that are um, kind of like uh, audio transcripts, right? So it's formatted similarly as if it was um, like a stage play or like a screenplay um, kind of way, but those are also meant to be like read on a page. And, and I think for me, it's because like, so much of what guides how I write and how I present a story is based off of like the medium that I'm working in. So if I'm writing a novel, I'm sitting down and I'm thinking about what this will look like with like words on a page, right? Um, and specifically like, you know, even looking at paragraph lengths or the lengths of sentences or how the dialogue looks when it's laid out on the page and all of that. Um, so I was very much thinking of it as like, what is this going to look like as a novel? Um, and how am I going to make the choices that I made to maximal effect, like within a prose format, right? Like a lot of the narration, particularly portraying like the relationship between Hayden and Horatio, where sometimes their, you know, points of view kind of blend together um, and, and kind of echo each other, all of those things, I think is really something that you can really only do when you're reading a book, right? Like you're getting that sense of the words themselves, like blending together and their distinct narrative tones and styles um, blending together, or even like Felicia is a little bit less flowery and she's a little more blunt. Um, so that comes through in her point of view when she's writing from her narrative versus like when Hayden is thinking in his own head. So like those like diction choices, um, like prose flow choices, all of that, like I think all of it is really dependent on just the book is a book. Um, now, certainly, I think you can absolutely adapt the story for anything, and and I, I think it's a it's really cool when adaptations happen. But like me personally, I wasn't really thinking about how it would look um, as a stage play. But again, like you know, I'm adapting a stage play, right? So then I have to make all of these choices where I'm like, okay, this worked as a play. Now, how am I going to make this work as a book, right? No, exactly, exactly. But there wasn't like a little like glimmer of hope in the back of your head as you're writing it. Like this would be really cool and like some off Broadway like black box theater with amazing up and coming. Yeah, actors. like um, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think that um, 
it, it would be really cool. Um, have you heard of something? Have you heard of like Sleep No More? It's like that, uh, like Macbeth theatrical experience. Yes. Um, where you like just go and you wander around and things are happening like simultaneously in different rooms. I think I would love for something like super experimental like that. <laughs> Ooh, I could see that because I do feel in a lot of ways this is very experimental. So I think I think you're right. I think that would work in this. Mm-hmm. But I think any adaptation, the ideal for me would be for whoever is doing it to have a vision and feel free to take apart whatever they want from the original text to make that happen. Because that's how I approach adaptation. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's so much fun. And now now that you said that, now I'm like, oh, what if like Meow Wolf decided to like the artist of Meow Wolf decided to take this apart and do something really (laughs) experimental? I'm like, oh, great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, or like an escape room, you know? <laughs> yeah, just an escape room. That would be great, too. That would be fun. Oh, so much fun. So much fun. Well, let's chat a little bit more about... I'm really curious, because you've got your security guard that you've kept, and mm-hmm. he's really just a supply closet guy. And, <laughs> and I feel bad, because you've done really you know, really good character studies, but he's just, he he almost feels a little bit throwaway. Um, Mm. um, Mm -hmm. just because we get so in depth in your, in your other characters. Um, Mm -hmm. was that a conscious choice just to have someone who is a little more on the periphery? You just needed an extra body or you just like, nope, we're just going to, everybody else is, we've gone deep on, you can just get a little, a little less deep for this, this particular character. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for me, a lot of the way that I approached that character was like, I think my main characters are honestly not great people. <laughs> and I mean, I think they're complex people and I love them, but I think that a lot of the times this is also a very self-centered story um, in that a lot of the characters are very, very preoccupied with each other and themselves. It's a little incestuous, right? Like that whole family drama sort of tone um and part of that was like shutting out any anyone that they deemed kind of other to um like to their little insular family drama um and you know i think someone like for example felicia's father you get a lot of depth of him or at least you get kind of little glimmers and glimpses through felicia through a little bit you know of horatio being curious about him but in hayden's mind he's kind of just like he's Felicia's dad, you know, and he doesn't really have much interesting depth to him from that point of view, but you get Felicia's point of view. So you do get to kind of see him as a person. Right. Um, And then with uh, Rasmus and like the security guard, he doesn't really have someone, right. He doesn't have someone who's in the sort of insular family, like tight knit group here to basically be able to see him as a full person. Um, And yet he is kind of an extra body. He's like there to be used essentially, right? Um, And I certainly think that part of the point of that was to emphasize like both how insular it was and then also how, yeah, like how how much of of a somewhat selfish story this was in the end. Yeah, I think those are two great points. The idea that, you know, he has no one to kind of see him and represent him, um, mm-hmm. which which is really interesting because there are, you know, some light interactions with Hayden and that just really mm-hmm. kind of echo that. Like Hayden does not see him. <laughs> you 
He just... Yeah, Hayden's like, this is a guy who's there when I'm at work. And then when I leave, I never think of him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, why would we go out? I don't understand why we would go after work for like, you know, chicken wings and beer. I don't understand what's happening. Um, and, <laughs> and in then, part, it's also because Hayden is not very social. <laughs> <laughs> that too. I mean, that, that's fine too. At least there's a good reason. He's just, he's not necessarily trying to be a jerk and be like, go have your like after work get togethers, everyone. I'll stay here. <laughs> um, but I, I, I also think it resonates too, like the idea of like somebody who is outside these two kind of, you know, entangled families, right? This, mm-hmm. this other person who just gets caught up in their drama and mm-hmm. the lack of care that mm-hmm. gets taken when people are navel gazing at their own drama. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I know like frequently, you know, people will tell me like, oh, I couldn't stand reading Hamlet when I was in school because, like, Hamlet is just so selfish and self centered and whiny and all of that. And I'm like, I know, I know. I think that's interesting though, right? Um, when you do have someone who is fundamentally selfish and who is fundamentally self-centered and is prone to navel gazing like you said but also wields a lot of power and influence right and i and i think just on that point i don't think you've made him selfish in this book (laughs) which is really fascinating And, and one of the things that i liked reading too is this idea of um the complexity that he has Mm -hmm. and the reasons Mm -hmm. for what he does don't Mm -hmm. feel selfish. I mean, they might Mm -hmm. be, I mean, I guess they probably are, but they don't feel as selfish. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think part of it is, is that sort of idea that, you know, when we are hurting, I think a lot of the times that manifestation is in being prone to then hurting other people. Right. And, and I think that is kind of at the core of Hayden is that he is someone who is hurting a lot. um, And I have a lot of empathy for him. um, And, you know, he obviously comes from a place that is very near to my heart. Um, and yeah, like I think that he all, he has so many reasons to do what he's what he does, right? And in, in in part of it is that his like his fear, his sorrow, his despair it drives the whole story, right? Um, but then on the flip side, when he is sunk so deep into those feelings, I think you know for me it was really important to kind of have a very clear eyed view of what that kind of you know struggling with depression does to a person and how that can manifest right in that sometimes it like depression turns us into assholes right and we blow off our friends and we don't want to hang out with them and we become very 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 entangled with ourselves right i think so much of his selfishness is also a symptom of his illness right um and i it was important to me to accurately represent that rather than kind of using it as a crutch or an excuse. Right. No. And it, and it humanizes him and and it makes us empathize with him in, in a way mm-hmm. um, and have our own, our own relationship with him. Cause it, that relationship of empathy or mm-hmm. tiresomeness Absolutely. with empathy, like changes as, as the book goes on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, in part, I think for me, um, what I wanted to do was sort of communicate that, yes, you can be, you know, stuck in the throes of 
having all of those terrible feelings and stuck in your own despair and in being stuck in your own despair, stuck in your own bullshit, basically, pardon my language. (laughs) But um, ultimately, that there is a way out still, right? That doesn't preclude you from then also growing and learning and being a person who is capable of empathy. Um, And I think that was, that's like a really important part of the book for me um, is to kind of depict that both without, um, like I said, in a very clear eyed and frank way, but then also not undercut the idea that, you know, that isn't the end of the story by far. And that, I think, is a perfect way to wrap our discussion. Um, But before we close out, what exciting new things are you working on, if anything? Anything you want to do a little plug for? Ooh, well, I have a novella that is actually currently available right now. It's called If Found, Return to Hell. Um, and you can purchase that at the Solaris website. Um, and it is a slightly different tone than The Death I Gave Him. It is a uh, story about a wizard intern who works at kind of like a wizarding help center. Uh, and the demon prince that uh, this intern meets, uh, and it's kind of about found family and also how to make a meaningful life out of living in a corporate hellscape. <laughs> um, and right now I am currently working on a novel, um, no real plans as to, you know, when that will be available yet, but just for a little sneak peek, it is, uh, going to be about revolutionaries in space. So there's my space idea. <laughs> revolutionaries in space surviving corporate hellscapes what more could you want i mean and of course uh locked room queer shakespeare i mean there's only so much that that we can we can hope for but i think you've really just kind of covered that that gamut (laughs) i hope you can find something you like out of out of all of that Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, so glad that we were able to make this work. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I have been speaking with M. X. Lu, author of The Death I Gave Him, which comes out September 12th, 2023 from Solaris. I hope you've enjoyed today's chat. I invite you to subscribe to be the first to know the new books in science fiction. I'm Brendan Wesser, host of this week's episode. Our theme music was composed by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Rob Wolf edits the show. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of the New Books Network with Leanne Wilson as co-editor. Thank you so much for listening and take care.